you would, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. We are only in one verse. That might seem strange to you, but because we believe what the Bible is, there is a lot of truth packed into small portions. One thing you need to remember, and I've said this numerous times to our church over the last couple years, one thing you need to remember about preaching is that the preacher himself sits under the same preaching. The preacher is not immune from the sermon. Matter of fact, when the preacher is truly faithful to the Bible and desires to say nothing but what the Bible says, then even the preacher himself will be most challenged. And I say that because it's been that type of a week. 2 Corinthians 3, 6 is one of those verses, and really just this last sentence, it's one of those verses that if you get it, it becomes, as it were, one of those life verses. I know all scripture is inspired, but sometimes there are those that are, just really resonate with us. And if you're asking the question, what does the gospel of grace even do for real life? Oh, this is, you're going to see, there's a lot here. Let's read and then we will pray. Very last sentence of 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are asking that by the Holy Spirit you would take the living word and transform our hearts, that you would not merely teach us to our heads that we might know more doctrine, that is very necessary, but don't just keep it in our heads, but move it to our hearts, and from our hearts out through our hands. Father, we are asking that as we hear both law and gospel this morning, that we would be transformed to see that all of life is meant to be lived for the gospel of grace. Lord Jesus, we ask all this in your name. Amen. We know we're supposed to love each other, right? That's what everyone says today. But the reality is is that it's hard. Here's what often our days look like. We wake up to our phones demanding us to get out of bed. But what we do is roll over and immediately check Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. We see our friends or our role models doing enough, which makes us think, this is the day I'm finally going to get my life in order. And we think that that's the answer moving forward. And from there, we go into the kitchen to turn on the coffee. And oftentimes, whether with roommates or family, it can already be tense in the house because everyone's still tired. Your family's tired, your roommates are tired, your friends are tired, and everyone's focused on their own to-do lists for the day. You know you're supposed to love them, but they're kind of standing in the way of you getting your life together. They're beginning to demand time and your schedule and attention, and the more stressed you get with what all you need to accomplish today, you start to find yourself getting a little bit more angry or bitter or frustrated towards those people. You just want them to get on your schedule. But as they're needing to do the things that they need to do for the day, you realize 
It's going to be some sacrifices for you to love them. And that's the moment right there. That's the moment in our hearts when we feel the tension of what it means to love other people. We know we're supposed to love one another as ourselves, but it's so difficult. And if we don't think it's difficult, then we don't realize what God's law is actually demanding of us. But the problem is that even though we know we're supposed to love other people, we do the exact opposite. We just want to love ourselves. Why do we do this? Because all of us have one word that just haunts us internally and externally. And it is that word, enough. Are you enough? Now, when I say enough, I don't mean just barely making it to the lowest standard, but rather the highest standard. When I say enough, I mean, is my life justifiable? And we know that God's law, we know it demands obedience, it demands perfection. And even unbelievers know that. We read this in Romans 2, 14 through 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires... They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. Talking about the actual Ten Commandments. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Paul nails it. Because we all have on our conscience the plaguing question, Am I enough? Am I doing enough? Deep down, we all know that we are not enough in God's eyes. So what do we do? We, we reject God's law and we try to come up with our own. We prefer our way better than God's way. And here's what the result is. And you'll see how this is leading up to the text. The result is that we just sin hunt with each other. All, all we do, all we look for is just the sin, the weakness, the failures in ourselves and other people because we know that we're not enough. But then even when we try to make up our own system, we think that we're the righteous ones, so then we focus only on what others aren't doing. We focus on their sins, their failures, and even when they might be more beautiful or talented or skilled or funny than us, then we find ways to be ultra-critical of them so that we can just feel better. No wonder today that sin hunting has led to cancel culture. The Bible sees straight through this. It's not surprised at all. Because in today's world, we get into our groups of people and we look at everyone else and we say, if you're not with us, then you're against us. If you're silent on the issue that we care about, then you must be positively promoting violence. We'll tell everyone else about their sins so that we can knock them off their pedestals so that we can remain on ours. And let me tell you something. It doesn't matter what political party you align with. All of us do it, Christians and unbelievers. The results of this is that there's lots of division today. There's rivalry, there's hatred, there's prejudice, and there's a lot of suspicion. It's often why we have curated social media accounts. That's not really who we are. We just want people to think we're really like that. 
We love to virtue signal. We love to be yes men. And we lack an ethical backbone because we don't want people to not like us. All this is because rather than loving others, we love ourselves more than anything else. That's the problem with sinners. And the predicament here in our world, in in this church, outside this church, wherever you might go, all of us are in our sin, we're posturing ourselves like this. We're saying, I'm not going to move towards you. I'm not going to love you until you love me. But the problem is this. Let me use David for an example. I can do that, David. Good friends. I'll help him. David smoke a brisket yesterday. If me and David both have the posture of, well, I'm not going to love you until you love me, then is there going to be any love there? No. And then it's division. Why can't we just all get along today, right? What actually empowers us to do this? Here's one approach. Just how can we just get people to love each other? How can we just like each other and everyone get along? One approach is this. Let's just force people to do it. Let's just use the word love over and over and over. And then maybe people will do it. That's exactly what this first part of this sentence is getting at. For the letter kills. The problem with this approach of just telling people to do better, do more, be enough, the problem is that it's powerless and it's counterproductive. It's powerless and it's counterproductive. You see that there, look back at the text. For the letter, it kills What is the letter? What does Paul mean here? Essentially, the letter is this. It's the idea that we can obey God's law without God's power. That we can obey God's law without God's power. That, That I have it in myself to be good enough. So therefore, I just need to look within and do it. And that's how we treat other people. We treat them, we say, why are you that way? Just do better what we tell people is do more be better try harder the problem is there's no power in that there's absolutely no power in it paul says the letter it kills the letter this way of living we can also call it legalism it's powerless romans 8 verse 3 says that the law can't do the work of salvation in itself The letter, this way of trying to obey God without God's power, it's powerless. It doesn't work. Because here's what the letter does. Here's what God's law does. God's law demands perfect obedience, not just your best effort. It demands perfect obedience and perfect affections for that obedience. The law says, do this and therefore you will live. And what happens there is that that's what's in our conscience. You feel that, right? You know that's there because you do it in your relationships. You do it at work. College students, you think about, am I choosing the right major? And no wonder we have people who are going from one major to another. And next thing, you're like 36 majors down the road. Because we're wondering, what's going to be the thing that will make me enough? The problem is that 
the law in itself cannot justify sinners. Rather, here's what God's law does for you and me. It really exposes our sin. And it exposes our sinful nature. God's law does not just show us that we do bad things or wrong things. It shows us we in ourselves are wicked. That's why John Newton in Amazing Grace talked about how we were wretches. Not good people who just need a little bit of help. The law is powerless. The letter is powerless. But it's also, it's counterproductive. You see that there. It says the letter, it kills. This word for kill is not the normal word for kill in Greek. It's actually the word meaning more so slaughter. It's violent. Meaning that when you try to obey God's law without God's power, when you're living in self-righteousness or you're embracing legalism, it's doing the opposite to you. It's not giving you life, it's bringing death. This Greek word is actually used to picture a beast ripping someone to shreds. When it says that the letter kills, notice that it does not say this. this help, help you read your Bible here. It doesn't say for the letter killed uh, us in the past tense. And it doesn't even say this, that the letter will kill. It says it kills, meaning it's ongoing. Here's what this means. As long as you reject the gospel of grace and try to be enough in life, it is killing you. It's always in that process. And that was the problem with the Corinthians. As they were trying to do a Jesus plus something else type of system, or they were trying to follow these false teachers, the problem is that when they turned from the gospel of grace, it was having the opposite effect that they wanted. See, this is what sin does, is that sin takes God's law, which here's the thing about God's law, God's law in itself is not the problem. The problem is us. God's law is good and beautiful and holy because it reflects and reveals Him. The reason why we might hate God's law, hate God's ethics, is not because they're wrong, but because we are. But here's what sin does. It takes something that is good and it misuses it. Romans 7 verse 11 says this, For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. How does it deceive you? Because when you go about life saying, I can be enough if I just do more and be better, it fools you into thinking that there's a way you can do that on your own. And as you live that out, it kills you. Haven't we seen this in life? I mean, don't, 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 don't we see this today? This is not a strange phenomenon. You see, when God's law or the laws of our own heart, as it were, if it's only seen as being due enough, then we end up rejecting God's law and trying to find other ways of being enough. You want to hear how we do it? I'm glad you didn't say yes. Um, Because this hurt writing it. Here's what we do. It's a long list. How do we seek to be enough in our lives? We try to read enough books. Just go to my office. You'll see my problem. 
We try to listen to enough podcasts. We try to make enough money. We try to gain enough respect. We try to have enough boxes on our doorstep because finally Amazon will satisfy us. We have to have more compliments on our beauty. We have to be told that we're funny yet again. We need to be the person who is sought for advice. We have to have our kids always looking up to us. We even say we need to have more sex, more hookups, and then it'll be enough. We need to be seen as someone who is virtuous. We need to preach a great sermon. We need to have more numbers, more events. We need to have more babies so that there's a future. We need to have more friends. Take another bite, and then it'll satisfy. Have another drink, and then it'll give me rest. Be high another time, and then I'll finally be at peace. Have another hour of sleep. Establish another level of security. If we can just get another like or another retweet or find another news outlet or get another promotion. If we can just have another unforgettable vacation and make sure we post it to Instagram so that everyone knows it was actually unforgettable. If we can just get a bigger house, a nicer car, or if people can be envious of us having the bigger house or nicer car. If we can have another publication if we can revision history or revision theology so that it matches what we think if we can have enough people over if we can have enough vulnerability if we can have solid enough counseling sessions or another good job performance review or if we can be invited to speak at this conference or if we can just have a better looking spouse more muscles Emotional intimacy or OSU football having a winning season. If I can finally earn my parents' or my role models' approval and respect. If I can be told that I was right. If I can have another item of clothing or if there can be that another juicy piece of gossip or just frankly that other YouTube video. How are you seeking to find your enoughness in life? I love what one person said, listen carefully and you'll hear that word enough everywhere, especially when it comes to anxiety, loneliness, exhaustion, and division that plague our moment to such tragic proportions. You'll hear about people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough, charitable enough. Woke enough, good enough. We believe instinctively that were we to reach some sort of benchmark in our minds, then we would be vindicated. We would be enough. What happens as a result of trying to be enough when we pursue the letter? Then we just create communities and friendships and families where there's a lack of honesty. There's an increase in hiding and masquerading. There's a lot of insecurity. I realized that a lot about myself this week. There's lots of exhaustion from heavy burdens, and we continue to reinforce identity based on how well we are performing. 
ask yourselves some of these questions. Am I always finding ways to condemn and judge others? Am I primarily pointing out what's wrong with certain situations? Am I always in critic mode? Do people know me for being a harsh parent or spouse or boss or pastor? Do my children or my friends or my spouse, do they tense up when I'm around them and do they feel like they're walking on eggshells? Can I ever laugh at myself with others? Am I constantly disappointed with myself or others because the standards are not being met? Am I acting like my spouse is a worse sinner than me or that they have more potential to sin than me? That is how we know we're living in light of the letter. Because we're trying to be enough and we're demanding that other people would be enough in our eyes. You see, when we do this, we, we, we fail to remember Jesus. We fail to remember that there is grace. And so what we do is we hold people's past over their heads. And unfortunately, freshmen, I just hate to tell you, but there will be some people who will look at the things that you did this semester and they'll never let you forget them. And that's not right. We love to hold people's past over their heads because we think that's a way we can control them. We love to make people's sin synonymous with their identity. We love to identify ourselves with our sin. And then whenever we see someone as they are that sin, then we can't forgive them, we can't move forward, we can't reconcile where possible, we constantly revisit their past, we blame them for things that really aren't their fault, and we locate all of our problems in them because we fail to bring Jesus into the picture. Y'all feel the weight of this? What we do whenever we live this way is we're functioning, even if we say we're Christians, even if we are Christians, we're functioning like we're atheists. Do y'all have those relationships where you're functioning as an atheist with this person? There's no grace there. What Jesus did only matters on Sunday, but not the rest of the week. It only matters in church, but not at my home or in the dorms. Really, what we're saying to people is that you're not living up to my law. And in our system, there's no atonement. So when everyone, and whenever anyone sins against us, they stay in what I like to call our personal purgatory. We, we, we blacklist them. Here's one way we do that. Have you ever noticed what we are trying to do whenever we hold a grudge against someone? By holding that grudge, what we are trying to say is this. When they see the pain that they've caused me, then they'll come crawling back and begging for my forgiveness. How often has that worked? There are two reactions that we tend to have whenever the letter kills. We either fall into despair or arrogant determination. We fall into despair and maybe, maybe someone is treating us legalistically and we're in despair and we say, I'm never going to be able to satisfy them. And some of you have that relationship with your parents. Some of you have that relationship with your kids. Or 
Sometimes we are treating someone legalistically and we say, oh, well, they're never going to change. And we forget the Holy Spirit. And what results there is that we can bring in a lot of passive aggression or even full-on aggression. We love to mess with people's pet peeves or give them the silent treatment or we just keep a list of things and then we just drop the bomb at the right moment so we can show them that we're right. Or we, the other reaction is arrogant determination. If people are treating us legalistically, we say, well, I'm going to prove it to you. And then you're going to see. Or if we're treating someone legalistically, we say, you better prove it to me. And there's never any encouragement or thanksgiving in that. In this system, we're so self-absorbed that we're really not doing this for anyone else. We're just doing it for ourselves. Here's where it gets really convicting. It gets convicting in marriage, parenting, friendships, and in our relationship with God. Y'all don't know who this is, but I sat down with a married or a couple who was wanting to get married. And I always love to ask the question, like, how, how did y'all meet each other? Tell me your story. Why do you love each other? Why do you want to get married? Here's what one person said. I love him because of the way he makes me feel. Here's a question. What happens when someone else makes you feel that? Because really whenever we say, I'm, I love you because of the way you make me feel, you don't really love them, you love the feeling, you just love yourself. That's what happens whenever there's no grace in marriage. Whenever there's no grace in marriage, we often have these accusatory thoughts towards them and we say, why aren't they pulling their weight in this marriage? Why aren't they desiring me as much as I desire them? Why aren't they just letting me do my own thing? Why aren't they using my preferred love language? No doubt, there ends up being a lot of suspicion, bitterness, self-righteousness, scorekeeping, a failure to talk, a lack of desire to hang out, crickets. <laughs> Your conversations in marriage are only administrative. You only talk about the kids' schedule or the bills that need to be paid or what needs to be done with the house or the cars or the job or the trips. Or you even do this, you start to interact with phone, technology, or TV more than your spouse. Or it can even end up in an emotional affair or an actual affair. That's what happens when we forget the gospel of grace in marriage. But what about parenting? Isn't it very sad but fascinating that how quickly our culture has changed from seeing children as a blessing to now we see children as a disturbance. We don't want to have kids because they disturb my life goals. Or we parent in such a way where we put un, unwarranted pressure on our kids to be the version of ourselves we wish we could be. Or how about this, even, let me speak to the children and the youth. Do you despise your parents' advice because it doesn't fit your desires? That's living without the gospel of grace. 
in friendships, we can, what we do when we lack the gospel of grace, we, can, we often just go from one friend group to another friend group because maybe they'll finally satisfy us. Or really we'll fail to open up to friends because we're so fearful of judgment. We fail to let go of past hurts. We become defensive whenever we're challenged. We avoid conflict like it's a cricket plague. We gossip about others so that we can look better. We exaggerate, we lie, we tell half-truths so that people can be impressed with us. Or we become overly clingy and codependent because we're treating them like they're the Messiah. We're quickly done with people whenever they don't fit our priorities, our preferences, our parenting style, or our political views. And then what about our relationship with God? Whenever there's no grace, you view God as always going on a sin hunt with you. He's the harsh God. He's a stingy provider. He's always suspicious of you. He's never encouraging to you. And whenever you feel encouraged in the Christian life, you say, I need to repent of feeling encouraged. Because if something says growth in the Christian life, it's about feeling really good, about feeling really bad. We have the attitude that God loves me more because I love him better. Or God is really happy and impressed whenever I do good and he's really angry and standoffish whenever I sin. That's what it's like to live in light of the letter. Interesting thing happened one day in a church where a businessman was a member and during an evangelistic campaign, a prostitute came forward and confessed her sins. She was brokenhearted and she wept openly. She asked God to save her soul and it, it expressed a desire to join the church. She said, I'll gladly just sit in some back corner. The preacher hesitated to call for a motion to accept her into membership. And for a few moments, the whole church was quiet. Finally, a member stood up and suggested that action on her request be postponed. At that point, the businessman, he arose and he said with not a little sarcasm, Well, I guess we all blundered whenever we prayed that the Lord would save sinners. We forgot to specify what kind. We'd better ask him to forgive us for this oversight. The Holy Spirit has touched this woman and made her truly repentant, but apparently the Lord doesn't understand she is the type we don't want in our church. How often we are like the Pharisee in Luke 18, 11, when we say, God, I thank you that I am not like the adulterers or the unjust or the extortioners. That, my friends, is the law. It doesn't feel good, does it? So I'm not asking you to say amen. So how, why can't we just all get along? It's clearly not that way. Because that's the result. But see, brothers and sisters, this is why Jesus came. Jesus came because we could never save ourselves. We could never be enough. We could never truly love others. We could never reconcile with our enemies. We could not save ourselves. That's why Jesus came. And when Jesus came, 
It says in Ephesians 2, 14 through 16, for he himself is our peace. Amen? He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Do you know what's amazing about the book of Ephesians? The first three chapters is Paul saying, this is the gospel of grace. Do you know what the second three chapters are? This is what the gospel of grace does. It brings unity. The gospel of grace. It's because of what Jesus has done for us. It's because Jesus took our sins when we were most loveless. And he died as if he were the most unlovely. On the cross, he was treated as if he was the ultimate source of all self-centeredness. He was treated as if he was the worst racist, or the worst spouse, or the worst parent, the worst child, the worst friend, or the worst human being. He did that so that we would not have to be treated in light of our sins. We could receive his righteousness and his grace and his forgiveness. Amen? Come on now. Jesus is the one who was enough so that in him we could be enough. He's the one, as our song, one of the songs we sing, he has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. In other words, if you believe in Jesus Christ, God is no longer looking at you saying, be better, be enough. Amen. So when you hear the voice inside saying, be better, be enough, it's not from the Lord. Because Jesus was enough. Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. The gospel of grace not, does not say, do this and then live. Do this and then be blessed. It says, you can never do it, but Jesus did it for you. Now, live in the power of his grace. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5 verse 1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul's saying, whatever you do, don't go back to living in light of the letter. Live in light of the gospel of grace. That's freedom. And it's freedom in your relationships. Brothers and sisters, that is why in the church when it doesn't matter if you're black or white, old or young, male or female. It doesn't matter if you're from Alabama or if you're from Washington. It doesn't matter where you're from. The gospel of grace brings total strangers together and people look at us and we say, how in the world are, are y'all friends? It can even make OU and OSU people friends. And that's the whole point. Because Jesus is the center of that. Is this not amazing? Can I, I mean, I feel like the guy from Gladiator, and I want to say, are y'all not entertained? This is God's heavenly message to you that Jesus Christ has come. I love what George Whitfield said one time, that nothing but a loud voice can wake up a sleeping generation. The gospel of grace... What it produces is a life like this. 48 years ago, David McAllister kidnapped a 10-year-old boy named Chris Carrier. He shot him, and he left him for dead in the Florida Everglades. 
Although Chris was blinded in his left eye by the bullet, he somehow survived. David McAllister escaped, and for two decades, he, he hid his sin. And then finally, 22 years ago, or tw- excuse me, 22 years later, he was on his deathbed, and he was so, his conscience was burning because of his sin, he finally confessed. This is what Chris Carrier did, who was shot and left for dead. At 32 years old, he visited the nursing home, and instead of going in anger and bitterness, you know what he did? He talked to him about the gospel of grace, and he forgave him. My friends, is the gospel of grace real today? Because we live in a culture that is saying so much more about justice, 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 and nothing about forgiveness. Rather than seeing justice happen on the cross. And we do pursue justice in ways that we can but not to the exclusion of grace and forgiveness. Because if, all, if we all got justice, we would all be condemned. But in Jesus Christ, because he was enough, there are times we can look at a situation where people are saying, justice, justice, and we say, mercy. Justice went on him. This is what Paul means, that the Spirit gives life. You all ready? Look at this. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The Spirit meaning, obviously, the Holy Spirit, but it's also talking about what the Holy Spirit brings. He brings the gospel of grace. What Jesus accomplished, the Holy Spirit applies In other words, the spirit in this context, it's the opposite of legalism. It's grace. Listen to this quote. What is grace? I'm actually combining two people here. So, What is grace? Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. This love, it needs nothing in return in order to be satisfied. It is the person whom I love that has the need. I see their need and simply just to benefit them, not because I'm going to get anything out of it, that's when I show them love. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. It is being loved when you're the opposite of lovable. My friends, Jesus Christ does not take you as you are. He takes you despite the way you are. In the Spirit, it says, that this gospel of grace, it gives life. This word, forgive life, I talked about a little bit last week. It's actually combining two Greek words. The one word, to make, and the other word, to live. So, obviously, to make something live. But this word is only used when it is describing the resurrection power of God. Do you know what the resurrection means? It means there is no life here. This is a casket with a dead body in it. They have no ability in and of themselves. A power from the outside must come and raise this person from the dead. That's what Jesus did with Lazarus. Wouldn't it have been really weird to be there when Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. (laughs) Um, 
him, do you know he's dead? That, it, it would be awkward. Unless Jesus is God. The same God who created all things out of nothing by his word. That's why Jesus, in a crazy way, not only would lay down his life, but he could take it up again. This is crazy. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all raised Jesus from the dead. If God can do that, what can he do with you? What can he do with a dead relationship? That's what Paul's saying. In a relationship where you think there's no way this can improve, there's no life here, the gospel says, try me. Is your marriage feeling dead? Are your children failing to respond to you? Are friendships waning? Are your employees unresponsive? Is there a significant conflict that seems to be killing the relationship? Is there estrangement? My friend, Satan loves to make you think there's no hope. But God loves to say, try me. Because the gospel of grace it does not merely command, it gives. It transforms. The Holy Spirit, He is competent to do the work. He transforms us in all of life. And it is by His grace that whenever there is a situation, we bring in the gospel of grace because that is what gives something power. My friends, maybe you're dealing with a friendship and you're trying to help someone and they're really struggling to repent. The gospel of grace is the power. Maybe you're in a marriage where it just seems like there's, you can't even go five minutes without having an argument. What do you need more of? The gospel of grace. College students, maybe you have a roommate. Let's just stop right there. You understand. The gospel of grace. We always need the gospel of grace, but there are the times when the gospel of grace, as it were, hits hardest. You know, the reason actually why I structured the sermon this way, where it was heavy at first and then grace second, is because that's actually how God deals with us. He deals with us in law and gospel. We always need the gospel of grace, but there's sometimes the gospel of grace resonates more, especially whenever we feel God's law. Whenever we know we need to be reconciled with God, whenever we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And brothers and sisters, that's the time that you need to plunge people into the gospel of grace. Not keep holding the grudge or the bitterness saying, yeah, I hope they keep feeling that way. No, you swoop in with the gospel of grace because Jesus was enough for them. Amen? I love what one person says in marriage. Being known in weakness is the origin of marriage. Marriage is the place where two sinners marry. And even in their most unlovely moments, they look at each other through the lens of Jesus and say, I'm still going to move towards you, even when you're not moving towards me. Grace-based marriages are filled with humble confession, and even more so, people who are trigger-happy to forgive. Grace-based marriages repent more and more of the self-centered posture. Grace-based marriages drop the past and move forward in love. 
grace-based marriages learn to self-sacrifice in order to love the other person. Because when two people are self-sacrificing to love the other person, guess what? You're getting love. The gospel of grace transforms parenting because now we know that the law in and of itself cannot change our children, but seeing Jesus can. In friendships, it means that when we have the gospel of grace, we can move towards someone, especially when they're at their worst moment. That we forget the past, even though other people around them want to keep bringing it back up, but we say, no, Jesus is enough. See, the gospel of grace means that we have freedom. You see how it's applicable, right? What do you need in your relationships right now? Nothing is more prominent than diving deeper into the gospel of grace because it's not just facts that you learn, it's a heart that changes in how you respond. How are people just going to get along? My friends, that's why we're here in Stillwater. To to go and tell them about Jesus. That's the primary mission of the church. To be someone like Charlie Hainlein. Charlie Hainlein was a layman at Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Apparently he's a man who radiates the love of Christ and he really loves to tell people about Jesus. One time he was, he was with someone and you can only imagine what this would have looked like. They're sharing the gospel with someone and as... Charlie's friend is sharing the gospel with a stranger. Charlie's just got this big grin on his face, kind of like Buddy the Elf. And they get to the point where his friend asks the stranger for a, a response. And this guy says, I'm still learning about all this, but as long as it makes me happy like that guy, oh yeah, you t- just keep telling me more. But Charlie's life was not a bed of roses. Charlie had a daughter who was kidnapped, killed, and her head was floating in a canal. When the murderer of his daughter was caught and convicted, Charlie went to the jail to talk to that same man about the gospel of grace. What could the gospel of grace do for us? What could the gospel of grace do for your relationships?